Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. We're currently looking at uh, uh, a book in the New Testament called 1 Thessalonians. um, And it's uh, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessaloniki um, after he had been there, preached the gospel, Uh, A community of believers had sort of gathered and then within weeks they had to leave because of persecution. They were, as Paul says in the letter, torn away from them. And so this letter is written from the city of Corinth. And really at this point, Paul is relaying back to the Thessalonians his love for them, his affection for them. And really trying to draw them into um, what had been going on um, between uh, his heart and theirs. It's a very relational, very emotional uh, letter. Um, I'm speaking on uh, the following passage next week, and we really I feel like we really need to just zoom in on that to to, to capture the the deep relational essence of what New Testament church life was like. Um, it really wasn't just me and Jesus. It's 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 us together with Jesus and the power of that. But um, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to read from. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to read. Um, The last few verses from chapter 2, which Tom preached brilliantly on last week. If you haven't heard that, please download it. It's an excellent uh, sermon. But it's kind of, you know, if you haven't yet, it's kind of a bit back to front. Because where I'm now going to start is, it's one of those ones where you think, why did they put the chapter division there? Um, In in, um, the original scriptures, there's no chapters and verses. I'm sure most of you know that. In fact, there's no punctuation at all. Um, It's literally just... And you have to just try and work, work that out. Um, so, but I don't know why they put the chapter break here because you'll see as we read. So we're going to put the first five verses of chapter three up. Um, if we've got them on the slide, please, Rosie. But I'm going to be reading um, the, the verses that come before that. And then you'll see when we pick up here. And this is what we're going to focus on today. So I'm going to be reading from verse 17 of chapter two. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, We endeavoured the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these beautiful, wonderful, inspired words. I pray you would help me to uh, preach on them well, to be faithful to the intention of your spirit in these words would come through. Pray for those that are listening. There will be people in this room that currently don't know you personally. We pray, Lord, that as I preach these words, Lord, that, Jesus, you would be revealed into their heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that when that happens, there's no going back. I pray for brothers and sisters in the room that know you and that love you. 
Some of them on mountaintops, others of them in valleys, some in between. I pray that your mercy would reach them today freshly. Thank you, your mercies are new every morning. I pray they would reach, your mercies would reach them freshly, exactly what they need to hear today, I pray. In Jesus' name, for his glory and for our good. Amen. So, have you ever been so worried about someone, so concerned about someone or about a group of people that after telling yourself, they'll, they'll be fine. And then after praying for them, Lord, please. And then after biting your nails a bit, and then after telling yourself again, they're going to be fine. And after praying some more, you then, even though it's midnight and it's raining, you think, I've got to get, I've got to get up and I've got to go and check on them. I've just, I've, I've prayed. I've told myself it's going to be fine. I've worried. But it's not settled it. I need to find out how they are. That's exactly the position here that Paul, this is that. This is what Paul is in. He's been torn away from the Thessalonians and he can't get them out of his mind. He can't shake them. He is uh, what we might call in this moment an anxious man. We'll look at that in just a minute. He uses these kinds of ideas. I mean, it's very strong language. When we could bear it no longer, we sent Timothy. And then later on, when I could bear it no longer, this is a, this, this is a man who loves the church. This is Jesus' heart for the church. This is why the Bible says that Jesus lives to make intercession for the church. Jesus intercedes for us. What an amazing thing. Jesus is before the throne of the Father praying for his people. Jesus carries the church in his heart. Paul carries the church in his heart. And this concern for believers should be something that every healthy believer can relate to. If you are here and you're a believer, if you are healthy in your spirit, you should be able to relate to this when you think of other brothers and sisters and that their, their spiritual well-being, when you know that there are those who are struggling, you know there are those who are wobbling in their faith, that you think, ah, what are we going to do? And you know that on one level it's beyond your control, but you still want to do all that you can to help them. Anyone relate to that? Good. It's a sign of health. But I want to just draw us into the, 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 the mind, the heart, the soul of Paul, because actually it's interesting here. We've got someone who is clearly anxious and fearful for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This is the man who said to the Philippians, be anxious for nothing. This is the man who says, we've not been given a spirit to make us a slave to fear. He's going, we're so afraid, we sent Timothy. What's going on there? How does that work? Well, I think it's beautiful because I think it delivers us from that really annoying super spirituality that some Christians display, whereby it's almost like they've been raptured already and they're no longer, they're no longer living on the same plane as the rest of us. And all they can do whenever hardship comes along is quote scripture. And you're going, yeah, I know that and I believe that. But please, can you struggle with me too? You get this weird brand of Christianity that's so triumphalistic that it's, kind of, it's, it's almost departed the earth. And the rest of us are looking on going, how do you do that? And they say, well, he, he, read this book that I wrote. <laughs> and you try and that doesn't work either. This is real Christianity. 
We're not to be governed by fear and anxiety, but we will most definitely go through seasons where things are weighing heavy on our hearts. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 28. He talks, talks spoken about all of his sufferings, shipwrecks and being you know, beaten with uh, sticks and all awful stuff. And then he says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's his world. Daily pressure, anxiety for the churches. He's, he carries the church in his heart. He's a human. It's not the kind of anxiety and fear that keeps you from being fruitful for God. There are some kinds of anxiety and fear where you're either caught up worrying about stuff that doesn't really matter in the long run. Clothes. Stuff Jesus said, right, tomorrow, this, that. In the long run, it doesn't really matter. There's a kind of fear that can just keep make your world shrink and shrink and shrink and become so small you can't do anything with God anymore. Because fear makes you totally self-absorbed. It's not that. He's fruitful for Jesus, but he's human. And that makes makes me want to say, hallelujah. Because it means I can be fruitful for Jesus and still human. So it's so important that we understand and hold all these things together, the whole counsel of God. But feel the passion. It matters how people are doing spiritually. And he says that we were worried that you would be moved by your affliction. That's his concern. He knows they're under affliction. They had to leave the city because of affliction, persecution. And he said, we're worried that somehow, that's the phrase that he uses, that somehow we sent Timothy to establish and exalt you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. That word move, it means you're you're being rocked, you're being shaken, you're being shaken from your place. Of confidence. People can be moved from confidence in Christ through hardship. I'll say that again. Genuine believers are vulnerable to being moved from their confidence in Christ through personal hardship. It's so important we understand that. It can wear people down. One thing after another. It can wear, it can wear you down. You can begin, where's God in this? Let's be honest. As we will look at when we get towards the second part of the message, the enemy can get in. And we're going to really look at this in in quite a lot of detail today. The enemy can get in, in those seasons of hardship. Paul is not naive. Paul is not naive. His solution? Well, you bet he's been praying. He's already, you know, that's clear. Constantly, constantly praying for you. He says that in the letter. Constantly praying. But also, he says, we were willing to be left alone in order that you might be strengthened. And so we sent Timothy. To do what? He says, we sent Timothy to establish and exalt you in your faith. So Paul, in his apostolic passion and wisdom and discernment, realized he saw that what they needed was a period of intense human contact in order to be established in their faith and to be exalted. They needed time with an older brother. They needed time with someone that could bring some spiritual perspective, some maturity that would help them. We're going to send Timothy. Sometimes you need someone. Yeah? Sometimes someone's prayers are not enough. Did he just say that? Yeah, I did. You need someone face to face who's going to look you in the eye 
who's going to listen, who's going to be able to, through godly wisdom and through the power of the Holy Spirit, they're going to be able to establish and exalt you in the faith. That word established, the idea is, is that it sets you, sets you in place where you should be. It's, it's about setting fast. It's about, it's about helping you face the right direction. That's what the word implies there. And the idea of exhortation is to, it's like an exhortation like with a coach, someone who calls you up. Come on, you can do this. You've got this. Come on. Someone says, no, don't do that. Do this. This is going to be more fruitful. It's different from encouragement. Encouragement is like when you just strength, hey, well done, you're doing well. Exhortation is encouragement's friend. It's a little bit bad cop, a little bit. Right? Encouragement just goes, yeah, keep going. Exhortation goes, yeah, but. (laughs) What you're doing there, that's not going to help you. You need both. And I wanted to ask a question in this room. Obviously, this is particularly pointed at those of you that are believers. Who are you keeping your eyes on? Who are, you, who are you looking out for? And I, I think that sometimes there's this kind of idea that goes around where some, everyone's assuming that the person that little bit more mature than them is keeping their eyes on someone. But imagine if everyone's thinking like that. You end up with a very, very few people who are apparently mature who are doing the work. Now, there's a place for that. There's a place for senior leadership getting involved. But actually, the whole, the whole tone of the New Testament is this one another in. This sense of, no, I'm looking out for people. I want to help people remain established in the faith. And I want to exhort them. Come on, we can do this. You've got this. Come on, God's with you. God's got a plan for your life. So important, those sorts of conversations. Someone to look you in the eye and say that. And sometimes we don't do it because you think, oh, it's so obvious. They know that already. Yes, but there's an enemy. There's There's warfare going on, which means that person's constantly being assailed by other thoughts. Constantly being assailed by other narratives. They're constantly facing discouragement, constantly facing negativity. And so when you come and say God's hands on your life, it can sound revolutionary. And you think, well, I can't do that. I've only been a Christian 10 years. I speak to people like that. You think, oh, I couldn't possibly. What are you waiting for? Another 20? We need each other. And we, don't, we are not helping each other by constantly deferring to others to do it. We need one another. That means there's something on each of us to do it. Some of you, it's like you're in that constant mindset of, oh, someone else will. Listen, they might not. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Today is a wake-up call sermon. It's coming your way. We're just warming up. It's a wake, I'll be honest, it's a wake-up call sermon. And I also want to say this. <laughs> This will surprise some of you. I can be, I can be way more polite than um, my instincts tell, than, than, I don't know, than, than I could be in my one-to-one conversations with people as a pastor. So often people will say things and I'll think, what? But I won't say anything. For better or for worse. If you really want to know what I think, listen to this sermon. Okay. I'm not doing that in this sermon. If you read it, what's he thinking? This is what I think, what I'm going to be saying to you today. Okay? It, 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 it's, I'm not going to hold back. Not to make some sort of drama, I just feel in my spirit, we've really got to say some stuff this morning. Who are you keeping your eyes on and who's keeping their eyes on you? Who are you exhorting and who is exhorting you? Is it happening? 
Is it happening? You might say, well, is it really a big deal? You might say, I'm doing fine. I'm doing okay. You know, it's okay. Well, listen to what the Bible says. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Did you hear that? Exhort one another. So if you go, yeah, well, God exhorts me all the time. With reverence, I don't care. Okay? Because the Bible says, exhort one another. Okay, so what, that's what God says. So you're saying, well, God exhorts. God's saying, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. Why? Because this thing's real. And if you don't hear good, strong, godly counsel from others daily, you are vulnerable to, be, to being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Okay? Do you actually believe that? Because I have conversations with people say, so how's running partners going? Yeah, fine, yeah, well, we, we meet fortnightly, but uh, we haven't been able to meet for a while, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Are you literally kidding me? Do you, have, do you actually believe this? You haven't grown for years. Well, yeah. That's why. Because you're so casual about everything spiritual, yeah, that it is fundamentally a bit of a joke. Okay, I'm not angry. I'm just wanting to be faithful to the word of God and say, look, wake up. For goodness sake, wake up. Some of you, you've been stuck in your own head on stuff for years. You're not moving on. Come on. Come on. Leave some stuff behind. Let's go. Let's go, for goodness sake. This is not the time to be nursing our wounds. This is not the time to be distracted. This is, not the this is not the time. Yeah, The Bible talks about a great falling away that happens at the end. Okay, I don't know if this is it, but I will say this to you. I have never seen so many people fall away. I have never, in 32 years of being a Christian, I have never seen so many people falling away. So I'm not saying this is that, but if it's not that, it's a precursor to that. Okay? Because this thing's real. This thing is real. And if you're going to adopt a skeptical, cynical posture, I don't know why you're here, frankly. I don't know why you're here. It doesn't, doesn't make any sense to me. Who is helping to carry you? Who is praying for you? Who is exalting you? Who are you helping to carry? Who are you praying for? Who are you exalting? Can you answer that question? If not, come on. Come on. Paul gets explicit. He says, we are afraid that the tempter has tempted you, leading to our labor being in vain. I want to really just bring it in. What do those two things mean? Laboring in vain. And the tempter. The tempter is a character that we see from the earliest pages of Scripture, Genesis 3, manifested in that narrative as a serpent, but all kinds of different names, titles given to him throughout the Bible deceiver, accuser, uh, dragon, adversary, the Satan. Okay? That the tempter comes. And what he does is this the word tempt means test, and it's taken from the root word pierce. So he's looking to pierce you. Okay? That's what he's wanting to do. Okay. He's interested in piercing believers. Why? Because once you're a believer, once you're a believer, you've been pulled out of his kingdom into the kingdom of God. Okay? And he hates that and he can't pull you back. But if he can pierce you and paralyze you 
and keep you from being as fruitful as possible, it at least brings him some kind of sadistic pleasure. All right? So there's a, so there's a probing that goes on in order that he might know how and where he can pierce you. You see it from the story of Genesis. In Genesis 3, first thing he does with Adam and Eve, first thing he does is, did God really say? He will question throw seeds of doubt in about the word of God. Then once you're in that place, you'll state that's not true. This is what's true. And then once you go on from there, there's an alternative truth that's much better. That's how it works. And now that can happen wholesale in terms of completely turning away from the gospel, or it can happen in the small things that do matter. Where you stop, actually you throw away your confidence in God and you, end, you just close things down. And in the end, you're still a believer. You're not doing anything outrageous. But essentially, the tempter doesn't have to bother with you anymore. Why? Because you're not really doing anything anymore. You're not sharing the gospel. You're not really praying. You're not taking any ground. Okay. So when he's looking around probing... What's he, what kinds of things is he looking for? We're going to go really in on this. What kind of things? Is he, he, will, he will gain access through things like self-pity. Self-pity may not be a sin in and of itself, but it leaves believers so vulnerable. Because once you fall into self-pity and you spend some time there, then guess what? You end up, you end up doing stuff that is unrighteous and sinful and wrong because you basically feel entitled. Okay, because you're going, well, this didn't work out, and that didn't work out, and that didn't work out. And you kind of, what can grow out of that is a sense of, well, okay, then, it's, you know, woe is me, then I can do this, okay, that I can do this. No, it's not okay. Because you're dealing with stuff that's way, you're dealing with spiritual realities that are way beyond you. And just because psychologically you're telling yourself it's okay, you're still playing with fire. So it's not okay. So if you, are in, you know you're stuck in a place of self-pity, you need to shake that off. We literally do that in our house. You say, shake, shake it off, shake it off. Tell each other, you need to shake that one off. Sometimes when the kids are younger, I literally get them to shake that off. <laughs> you can't be messing around with that. It could be discontentment. You, 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 you know, the Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. It could be you're discontent, and as a result, you've moved into covetousness. Covetousness is when you want something that you haven't got so much, you lose your peace. It's a sin. Something's happened in your heart where you want something that you haven't got in your life so much, you've lost your peace. That is what covetousness is. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Okay, it's a sin. You have to repent of it. Why? Because if you don't, that thing will drag you into oblivion. It will drag you into all kinds of crazy choices you do not want to make. Pride. The devil loves a bit of pride. If you can find that and test you in that area because pride is about deception pride is blindness pride is you, 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 the way you see yourself it's not sober it's not sober and it leaves you so vulnerable this is the reality loss of confidence he loves that loss of confidence in God it's pierce you there but you can start looking for a different route rather than God fear or bitterness leads you to escapism this is why the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, above all else, guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. The heart and mind are an immense spiritual battleground. We can get ourselves into these states of mind, and it's so much easier to get there when you're not having meaningful fellowship, and that's more than a cup of tea with a Christian. Praise God for cups of tea. Okay, But we have to go deeper than that. 
if your running partner's involved, you're drinking coffee for 50 minutes and having a catch-up for 10 and, and going home. You had a lovely time, but I'm not sure that you're only been helped by it spiritually. It has to be more intentional than that. It has to be more intentional than that. This is real. Paul says we're worried that we'd labored in vain. We're worried. For Paul, what is he talking about there? What he's talking about is this. For someone to fall away, for someone to not continue in the faith, it quite equals for Paul a labor that was in vain. Christians very often make mistakes. Agreed? All right. Christians stumble in many ways. Agreed? Right. Christians can sometimes grow cold and lukewarm. Agreed? Yeah, we mess up. Agreed? This group in the middle, you're a failure, you lot, because you keep saying yes. No, I'm joking. We should all be saying what you're saying. It's true for all of us. James, who writes the kind of, you know, the meanest letter in the whole Bible, says we all stumble in many ways. Okay? We all do. We all struggle. We're all different. We're all facing temptations. All of us are. We're all in the same boat. We're all made of the same flesh. But when someone says they no longer believe in the gospel, at that point, at that point, it's very, very difficult to say they're saved. Very, very difficult. Even if there was a, you know, an amazing, apparently fruitful life beforehand. I'm not saying they're not. I'm just saying it's very difficult. Why is it very difficult? Why? Well, because of this. All of the benefits of salvation come to us through our union with Christ. He is the blessed one. He is the blessed one and he lives in the complete and perfect blessing of God from all eternity. And then when he took on flesh and lived a life of complete obedience to the law of God, facing every temptation like we do, but not sinning, become, and showing himself to be that spotless lamb and then going to the cross and dying for our sins. Literally, there's, the Bible says death couldn't hold him because he hadn't sinned at all perfect in every way. So he rose from the dead. He is Lord of all. All of the blessings of God center in him. Amen. And so when you are joined, when you are united with Christ, that's why you're blessed. It's not because you're one of the good guys. You ain't. You're joined to Jesus because you admitted that you weren't one of the good guys and you needed forgiveness. You joined him. How did you join with him? Through faith. And so through that union of Christ comes through faith. And so if that faith is gone, where does that leave you? We have to face this. It's a very, very difficult thing to kind of deal with and think about, particularly if someone has done so, so well up to a certain point. You think, where did, I don't know. But listen to what Paul says in Colossians. He's talked about the wonders of Christ and the gospel. And then he says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard, not shifting, not being moved, not being moved by affliction. I want to say this. I, Paul, when it comes to Thessalonians, he was worried that they were going to be what I'm going to call category two casualties. What's a category two casualty? I hear you ask. Well, in the Gospel of Mark, the very famous parable of the sower, Jesus talks about four categories. Category number one is the seed that falls on the path and the birds snatch it straight away. And that equates to people that hear the gospel, but it bounces straight off them. And Jesus' assessment of it is this, is that the enemy, Satan, comes and snatches it. Okay? That happens a lot. Many of you who are believers, you've spoken the gospel to people and it doesn't go in. 
Okay? That's not just a psychological moment. That's a spiritual moment. Okay? Category two is the seed that falls on the soil, but it's actually really shallow soil and very rocky underneath it. So things sprout up quickly, but, but then it quickly fails. And Jesus' assessment of those people are, it's those who they hear the gospel initially, respond with joy, like the Thessalonians. But then because hardship and persecution come on behalf of the gospel, they immediately fall away. Paul is worried that the Thessalonians are going to be category two casualties. My concern is that we become category three casualties. That's the soul that fell in the, the seed that fell in the soul, but it fell among weeds. And it, it grew up, but then the weeds grew with it and it choked the word. So it's not so it, it looks good for a while, but then there's this choking. And Jesus, what are the weeds? Three things. The deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, the worries of this life. My concern for us is that we're not going to be casualty, um, category two casualties. Why? There is, at this point, no fierce, full-on affliction like they were facing, being hounded out of cities. That's not there. Okay? But there is most certainly these things. Desire for other things. We're a very rich nation. It breeds covetousness. I want this. I want that. I want my bucket lists, life goals, all that. It can so easily... Turn from something innocent to just a weed. You're caught up with it. Okay. Both category two and category three do not bring fruit or harvest. The worries of this life. Will I have this in this life? Will I get that in this life? Will life work out this? Where will I be in 10 years' time? Worries, constantly going round and round and round. <laughs> Chokes. Unable to run. Unable to really run with God. You're caught up with that. Deceitfulness of riches, promises so much. Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Those who desire to be rich in life, they pierce themselves with many a pain. 1 Timothy. It's all in there. It's all in there. It's all very straight, straightforward. You haven't got to be a theologian to see it. But in both cases, category two or category three, there's no fruit. There is so much joy in running for Jesus with the weights thrown off. The writer to the Hebrews says, throw off sin that clings so closely, an acknowledgement that sin clings so closely, throw it off and the weights. There are things that just weigh us down. It's not sin, but you know that affects my race running. That affects that sense of just joy and liberty for Jesus. I tell you, guys, the, the word of God says, throw it off. Throw it off. God, please, can you throw it off? God says, no, you throw it off. Stop asking me to do stuff I've told you to do. Yeah? God, please resist the devil for me. No, resist the devil. Yeah? He will not do what he's told you to do. I know I'm being a sergeant major this morning. If you're a guest, you're thinking, what is this place? <laughs> what is this? I don't blame you for thinking that. I don't blame you for thinking that. I, it, this is not a church of heavy shepherding. I just feel burdened. I feel burdened. And I, along with Rich, need to give an account to Jesus for the state of this church. And if we've not been playing with you, guess what? The blood's on our hands. So I'm being plain with you. This is what it is. 
I'm urging you and I'm exalting you. Let's run for Jesus together. Let's work out how to do that. Let's have the difficult conversations that are involved in, in such a community to come into maturity. Let's learn how to speak the truth to one another in love. Let, let's learn these things. We don't do it. Most of us don't do it. If you're from the north of England, you might. Because you northerners tell the truth. Southerners don't. Particularly if you're middle class. Sorry. You just don't. It's a cultural stronghold. I'm not being mean. There are, every culture has its strongholds. The majority of the church here are British-born middle class, which means one of our most um, probable areas of weakness will be we do not do well at speaking the truth in love. We just say nice things to each other. It's different. It's not the same. I guess if the nice thing's true, fine. But I think, I think it's about speaking the gospel to each other and exalting each other. And this is why I say I think I'm... Politer than because I think, oh, I don't, you know, I'm not sure. You know, I, I've had people leave the church when I've spoken to the truth of them in love. I had someone say to me once, I've been having nightmares about you for the last two years. That makes you think twice. I didn't think I did anything wrong. I just thought, I, I need to say something here. So I said it. They then tell me that two years later. That makes you think twice about doing this. But what's the, what's the result of us not? Where do we end up? Perpetual spiritual babies. Completely harmless. Completely harmless. As a, as a spiritual force. Completely, I mean, you know, the devil could probably just leave us to it. We wouldn't even have to spend any reason. Oh, no, it's just them. It's Rev. No, they, don't, they never speak the truth enough. They just say nice things to each other. I know they're all right. They always just pray about stuff that God's already told them to do. It's all right. It's fine. we doing what are we doing i love this church that's one speaking truth one of the things that you know tom asked us last week in his sermon what's your joy and your crown we looked at that in our gc together in our small group together and you know you think well absolutely you know myself and davina poured our life with others, not just us, but poured our life to planting and seeing this church established. Willing to pour, continue pouring our lives to come into new seasons of fruit. But we've got to, you've got to do it with us. You've got to come with us. We've got to, you've got to get serious. You can't mess around. You can't spend the next 30 years just drinking coffee in London. There's more to do. Do it while drinking coffee, but there's more to do. Can you hear me? Yeah? So you've got to stop being timid. You've got, to stop, you've got to stop telling half-truths. You've got to stop all this stuff. You've got to get real with God. Some of you go, oh, God's not taking me seriously. Listen, you're not taking him seriously. Okay? Take him seriously. He will take you seriously. He shouldn't, but he does. Okay? And I'm not being mean to you. I believe exactly that. I have no idea why he takes me so seriously, but he does. Now I need to start taking him seriously, taking his word seriously. We need more of the Holy Spirit but what are we doing with the Holy Spirit that we have? I don't know how to end this sermon. All the notes are gone. I'm freewheeling now. Um, we need, you need to listen. Do something. 
What do, you, what do you need to do? What do you need to do? The questions I'm going to put for the GCs that want to look at them are, where were you being probed by the tempter? Where's he probing? What's he found? That's a real question for you. Where are you being probed? Where's he looking to pierce? Name it. Know it. Where's your Achilles heel? Name it. You can't name it, you're in trouble. Okay? Who are you establishing in the faith for exhortation? Who are you feeding into? Who? Who? Don't answer vague. Don't know vague. No, who? Who are the people? And who's, in, who's, who's, who's lovingly in your faith, in your life, alongside you, encouraging and exhorting? Who? Who is it? Is it happening? People get stuck in dysfunctional running partners for years. All, everyone's too scared to say anything. Still there three years later, having coffee. Or forgetting, or oversleeping. What are you doing? What are you doing? Madness. Like, just do the stuff. Daily fellowship. I always come back from soul agitated because they do daily fellowship. And you go, this is amazing. This is amazing. It's a much simpler church than us. They haven't got anything. Only got a Bible. Only got each other every day. We'll find a way. Not everyone. But I would say probably, you know, they just, we'll find a way. Remember chatting to Joel, he's got married, Joel, he's, he's, he's dad, saying, when I get back to Bedford, I'm going to say to my church, on this morning, I'm reading my Bible there in that cafe, who's going to join me? Just doesn't take a lot. Do it, one another. You do not need permission from the elders to do that. Unless you're trying to set yourself up as some sort of pastor, then you do. Okay? But if you just want to meet, do fellowship, get on with it. Get on with it, please. And then what weeds do you need to pluck up? A culture changes when certain individuals say enough. Right? It doesn't, you can't say, oh, well, let's all do it. No. A cultures change when individuals in that culture say enough. Enough. I'm going to do it differently. As they do that, they open up a breach, others go through. Imagine if all of us as individuals said, I'm going to do this differently. Just imagine. I nearly said flipping while I was preaching. Imagine. Imagine. It's not rocket science. So I'm deliberately not going to pray now. Because sometimes we pray as a way of abdicating our responsibility. So I'm not going to. And I'm not going to ask you to pray or pray for each other. Okay? You can pray from one o'clock onwards. No, I'm joking. <laughs> but do you understand what I'm saying? Like, deal with stuff. Make some decisions. Don't have a, mom don't have a moment here. Don't have a, I'm going to go to the prayer meeting on Tuesday morning, have a moment. Turn up Tuesday, great. Never go again. Don't do that. Don't do that. Make some decisions. Pull in other people to help you to be faithful to those decisions. Cry out for the Holy Spirit to give you the power to be faithful to those decisions. 